0: Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute.
1: Here we go. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. Well, good day, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Aris. I am joined by Dr. Joe Boot, as well as by Ezra Institute fellow, Dr. Andrew Sandlin. And Andrew is fellow for Public Theology and Cultural Philosophy here at the Ezra Institute. He's also president and founder of the Center for Cultural Leadership in uh, Northern California. And Andrew, it is, uh, it is good to see you, brother. Glad to, uh, glad to have you back.
2: Very good to see you and be back. Appreciate both Joe and you and Ezra and love standing shoulder to shoulder with you guys in this great work of cultural reformation.
1: Amen. Well, we're going uh, to get into it uh, today. Uh, regular listeners will know that uh, we have wrapped up our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we've concluded with a few Q&A sessions on that. Uh, today, we begin a new sort of uh, mini-series over the summer, a series on challenges facing the church. Uh, these, are, these are challenges often uh, coming from within the church, as we'll see. And Andrew's here dealing with the question, uh, the issue, the challenge of Christian pessimism. And Andrew, in particular, uh, we wanted to uh, to get you on the uh, on the show for this episode because you have recently re released a book uh, of your own called a Post Millennial Primer, and that's uh, that's something that uh, that I'm hoping we'll we'll be able to uh, to talk about. We've talked here and there on the episode about or on the show about post millennialism, but we have never. Uh, to my recollection, spent an entire episode dedicated to it. So I'm hoping that uh, you can tell us everything that's in the book, so that uh, nobody needs to go out and buy it anymore. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, you can uh, tell us uh, tell us about the book. Uh, give us uh, give us what uh, what makes it valuable. What makes it uh, important for uh, for this time in the uh, in the 21st century? And then tell us. Uh, where, uh, where we should go out and, uh, and get more copies of it.
2: Thanks, Ryan. I'd say, introductoryly, that that sort of uh, theme of Christian pessimism is, in some sense, oxymoronic and self-contradictory, because to be consistently Christian, we actually cannot be pessimistic. Uh, it is accurate, though, in that there are a lot of Christians today that are, and uh, so they're not acting as Christians. Many of them are Christians, but they're not acting and thinking as Christian. So this book uh, is basically, a, it's not very long, it's a uh, sort of a summary of the post-millennial view. Now we get that language by implication from the text that you read a few minutes ago, Ryan, Revelation chapter 20, where that phrase in English, a thousand years appears. Almost everybody agrees that it doesn't literally mean a thousand years, just a long period of time uh, when Satan is bound and uh, there's a great time of godliness across the earth. Well, uh, the question is, what is the relation of Christ's coming? Is parousia, what is often called the second coming, to that thousand-year reign? Uh, There are various viewpoints, and that's basically what I deal with in the book. Uh, There is the premillennial view, that is the view that Christ comes before this millennium, this great time of uh, kingdom peace and godliness on the earth. Christ comes before and actually establishes physically and visibly that kingdom on the earth, where Jesus rules from Jerusalem, many of many of them at least believe that. Uh, then there's the view called amillennialism. That's kind of mistitled, ah, from the Latin no, really kind of literally means no millennium. That's misleading. It's not that amills amillennialists, don't believe in a millennium. They just don't believe in the kind of millennium that pre- and post mills do. Amillennialists believe this text is referring, well, there are basically several viewpoints. Some believe it refers to the saints, the deceased saints ruling in heaven. Some believe that it's uh, the eternal state, and some believe it's the present reign of Christ in his church, but not extending into society. Uh, and then there's a the third view, which is mine, which is the biblical view, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> that is postmillennialism. That's the view that there will be this time of kingdom expansion and that Christ will return after that. Uh, Now, to some people, that view sounds just novel and almost cultic. They have never heard that view as evangelicals. But I assure you, whether rightly or wrongly from the Bible, it has a a long history and provenance. Many of our Puritan forefathers were post millennial Uh, They believe that when Christ returned at the end of history, he will return to an earth, not a perfect earth, because there can be no sinlessness and perfection before the eternal state, but nonetheless one in which the kingdom of God has advanced. The way I I, I kind of use the metaphor of the exclamation point, it's as though the the parousia, the second coming, is this final exclamation point. Uh, of God's victory. There's expanding victory in time and history as a result of the preaching of the gospel, the power of the spirit, the adoption of God's law. And by that, I mean, biblical law. And then at the end, Christ returns to put that final exclamation point on on his kingdom. One more thing I'll say about that, uh, Ryan, I think it's important to understand that uh, postmillennialists are often misunderstood to teach that sort of we as Christians sort of bring in the kingdom that we hold a liberal idea that if we just have enough social programs and to support uh, socialism and stand for social justice issues, little by little sort of, we do our part to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Uh, that's just fanatically not what we believe. Uh, we believe that the kingdom of God is advanced uh, through time and history by the preaching of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit and as people more and more conform to the Bible, to law, to biblical law, it's not man's work, though we certainly do our work under God's authority. It's God's work in the world based on the first coming. So I think one big difference, and I'll sort kind of stop for a moment after this, is that post stress much more than many others the importance of Christ's first coming. See, other people are constantly looking to Christ's second coming, and it is important. It's not unimportant that they hinge everything in the world, what God's doing in the world, and He's built, he will accomplish something great only at the second coming. We hold that he began to accomplish something great at his first coming through his death, resurrection, ascension, and session. And the second coming will, of course, be the final exclamation point.
1: Right. Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. Joe, uh, this uh, this subject of <clears throat> postmillennialism, and specifically uh, postmillennialism as a, uh, as taught or held uh, by the Puritans, this is something that uh, that you deal with uh, in a somewhat extensive fashion in your book, The Mission of God. Uh, I just, I want to, d- know, knowing your position and the research that you've done there, I just want to give you an opportunity here to uh, to cross-examine Andrew. Just make sure that he's, uh, he's <laughs> you know, crossed all his T's, dotting all of his uh, lowercase J's, and... Uh, just suss out to maybe get to get deeper into some of the some of the distinctions and implications of post-millennial uh, eschatology for how we ought to live and how we ought to interpret uh, our cultural moment as well as interpret our bibles.
0: Mhm. Yeah, thanks Ryan. Well, the reason I think that we wanted to do this short series on challenges facing the church today and and this seems like an appropriate place to kick that series off, which, as Andrew rightly said, sounds like an oxymoron, Christian pessimism. But that pessimism in this series Mm. has a question mark behind it. Um, But it does seem as though uh, pessimism, a Christian pessimism, has almost become the orthodox Christian perspective, which I think Andrew there is alluding to the fact that this uh, is not the Christian pessimistic Approach is not the uh, either the orthodox or even necessarily the dominant view in the history of the evangelical faith. So, I think a a question I'd kind of like to start with is when, when we look at the current landscape, which is why I think this question is so important right now, and we see a variety of views that are certainly amongst most Christians, Andrew, far more popular than the position that you and I would hold, or at least have been uh, much more popular in the last 100 years. Um, We see two particular expressions, I think, that are worthy of note. You've talked about premillennialism, and especially in its dispensational variety, um, popularized very much by things like the Schofield Bible, and then uh, popular writers, the late great planet Earth, and then things like Left Behind by Tim LaHaye, and so on. These popular sort of uh, versions of theologies of escape from the world. And then you actually have a reformed pessimism too uh, in the in the the dress of what we might call a two kingdoms theology, which is a different form of escape from cultural transformation in the world. It says that while the kingdom is really something that's purely future, Uh, uh, where it exists at all, it is only in the life of the institutional church. Uh, But it isn't about the transformation of cultural life, of history. And one of the things you point out in your little primer is that really this view of of history uh, is not just about end times, last things. It's about first things. It begins in Genesis 1, 1 with creation, And so you've mentioned the Puritans, you've mentioned, well, you actually didn't mention, but I know you know about the Princetonians, the great uh, Benjamin Warfield and Charles Hodge, and actually, I think even Jonathan Edwards, uh, who would have taken what we would call a post-millennial view. Why is it, what could you tell us about, why is it that this view for so long, at least uh, in the last hundred years, has so fallen out of favor to feel like as though it's an outsider looking in on an orthodox evangelical eschatology where we're kind of seen as the aberrant ones on the outside, kind of radicals, dangerous, you know, kingdom now builders. Uh, what, how, how do we account for this Christian pessimism that we see around us in the church today? That's a great
2: uh, cross-examination question, Joe, uh, and I've given a lot of thought to that. I have come to believe very strongly that uh, it began in the first half of the 19th century almost entirely with, uh, not entirely, but almost entirely with a very bizarre uh, British Bible scholar called J.N.D. Darby, uh, seems like all evil theologies come out of England,
1: and um, <laughs> Germany.
2: That was a joke for those of you listening. <laughs> yes, well, I'm getting I'm getting to that too. Uh, Darby was uh, very intellectually gifted and uh, came up with a novel idea that the Church of Jesus Christ <clears throat> in the New Testament is uh, radically separate from uh, the the Church of the Old Testament, the Israel of God. This is a view almost nobody in the Church historically held to. Uh, He held that the church of the Old Testament is an exclusively and ethnically Jewish church. And when we get to the New Testament, God has a new plan. So essentially for Darby, we've got these parallel plans going on in the Bible. And uh, then uh, there were added to it later, the whole idea of the, the rapture of the church, the church, the New Testament church of the church age will be raptured up to heaven. And then there will be what's called a seven year tribulation period, a misunderstanding uh, the book of Daniel and other parts of the Bible, and then of course there'll be the millennium, and all of this will be Jewish. All of the Gentile, Gentile saints will be gone, and then will come the final second coming. Uh, it also had a very low view of biblical law. Basically, Old Testament ethics were good for the time; they were for the Jews, but in the New Testament, you know, we have a higher ethic given by uh, given by Jesus Christ. So it largely started with him, <clears throat> but uh, that's not the only thing. You mentioned Germany. I would also say the higher criticism that arose out of Germany as well as Darwinism uh, and, and later on in the, in the uh, 19th century, uh, the thought of Nietzsche and existentialism and, of course, the influence of Hegel in the previous century and going into the 19th century. I think all of these things conspired to gently and after a while not so gently choke this wonderful optimistic spirit of the Puritans, uh, both in England and in early America. And um, I, ha- I have come to believe, um, and I'm not by any means uh, an espouser of conspiracy theories, there's something diabolical about this. Think with me for a minute, if you will. If you were the devil, what is the best means you could use to get Bible-believing people? We don't mean liberals, but Bible-believing people those who do read the Bible, believe it and love it, to move away from a strongly robust, optimistic, kingdom-affirming vision? Well, one of the best ways would be to say, yeah, that's a great vision, but it was for the Old Testament. It's for the earthly kingdom of the Jews, and it's not for today, and persuade them that this is what the Bible teaches. So on the one hand, you have that, dis and I've summarized quickly, dispensationalism, or one main aspect of dispensationalism. And then, of course, the theological liberalism and Darwinism and existentialism and nihilism and uh, secular democracy and other such things that sort of grew radically and rapidly in the 19th century. And then we come to the 20th century and we have, and how did it ever happen, that uh, the uh, Schofield Reference Bible was printed in, of all places, Oxford, one of the most uh, historically well-respected uh, publishing houses, academic publishing houses in the world. How in the world was it, uh, was it possible that Oxford published the Schofield Reference Bible and thus uh, was able to import this very um, uh, defective theology all over the English-speaking world? It is for that reason I think dispensationalism is diabolical, and it basically strangled almost every sector of evangelicalism, and also influenced the Reformed Church. An interesting thing, Joe, you and I are Reformed. Brian, of course, Reformed. The interesting thing is how early in the 20th century, how many Presbyterians bought into dispensationalism. C.I. Schofield was originally a Presbyterian. How was it possible that people who hold to the unity of the covenants, Presbyterians, could default so uh, quickly into dispensationalism, which is radically anti-covenantal? Uh, well, I, I answered that this really was. I... Hate to blame Satan for everything, and I don't, but I think this was a diabolical work.
0: In a in a slightly um, a, a different way, um, don't we have a reformed uh, version of this um, separation um, in a, a a sort of reformed two kingdoms theology that I that I mentioned as well, which in a different different way wants to designate a common kingdom and a redemptive kingdom, and in one way or another drive a wedge between creation and redemption, and therefore interrupt what you would argue in the book is the unity of creation and redemption and this eschatological view of the triumph of the kingdom of God. Can you say something about that as well?
2: Yes. uh, Sorry, you mentioned that earlier, Joe. I forgot to address it. Yes, so that's just sort of a continuation of the Roman view. Well, uh, the problem with that is now you have um, uh, you have amillennialists today, prominent ones that are bec- very pessimistic as a result of that. Michael Horton, Scott Clark, other leaders of the uh, champion this two kingdom theology. Two kingdom theology is basically the idea that you have the kingdom of the left hand or the right hand, largely Lutheran, not totally, but largely the Lutheran idea that inside the family and the church. Uh, the, the church and family are governed by the written word of God and by Jesus Christ. But outside is this sort of common, permissibly non-Christian kingdom in which we sort of have to make do with natural law or some sort of vague, common revelation. Uh, and uh, as a result of this, there are very low expectations on what can be accomplished in fact, in many cases, it's not just low expectations, but very negative expectations. Uh, there's an attack on Christian culture. I've uh, got a chapter written a number of years ago by David Van Drunen. Um, got his PhD at a Loyola a Roman Catholic institution uh, in which he's writing an uh for Bob Godfrey against Christian culture, explicitly, you read the chapter, explicitly against Christian culture, and he attacks... Partly attacks Calvin, but he really goes after Abraham Kuyper, for example, that they went off track, and the Puritans went off track on this notion of Christian culture. Uh, But actually, this really is a denial of the lordship of Christ. How does Christ exercise his lordship? Well, always and everywhere, of course, by his redemptive death and resurrection, and by the power of his spirit, but also and equally by the power of his word, his written word. So let me put it this way. I think J.I. Packer, actually, the late J.I. Packer put it this way. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. But where you do not have the authority of the word of God, you do not have the authority of Jesus Christ. So most of these two kingdom people would say, yes, we believe Christ is Lord in culture, but they don't want to say that Jesus Christ is Lord by means of his word. But that is to talk nonsense. Jesus Christ is the mediator, not just of creation, but also redemption. And he is also the mediator of the word. He is the word. He speaks the word. So That's right. that is one reason that there is this vast pessimism among amillennialists. They don't really believe that these promises in here the, in the church of Jesus Christ in the present age. But I would say that when, when Jesus Christ, before his ascension, and then, of course, the revelation afterwards to his apostles, most of these great promises about the success of the gospel through the power of the spirit, most of them do not pertain to the eternal state. Certainly, as we get to the last chapter two of Revelation, we have this sort of beautiful ideal picture of this sinless state, no, no tears, no sin of any kind. All of us agree that's the eternal state. Yet there are too many promises in the word of God. And by the way, in this book, booklet, I go into Scores and scores, I list and quote those promises all over the word of God that in no way can be limited to the eternal state. Mm-hmm. They're um, fulfilled as a result of the, uh, the present kingdom of God established by Jesus Christ specifically at his first coming. It was around before, of course, even in the Old Testament, but in a very specific pointed way by Jesus Christ at his first coming. And then when he ascended into the heavenlies, uh, Daniel teaches that he ascended into heaven and was granted his throne. Daniel is about the great enthronement of Jesus Christ in the present age. He did Mm -hmm. not become king, presently enthroned king over the nations. And I would add to that, Daniel even says that when when he gained his kingdom, he gives the kingdom to the saints of the Most High, and the saints grasp the kingdom and advance the kingdom. That's the language of Daniel. A number of interpreters of Daniel can't quite stomach that that could refer to the present age, so they put this off, way, way off into the future. That is future to us. But Daniel's prophesying about things happening between three and six hundred years after he wrote, not three to six hundred years or three thousand years from our time forward. So for this reason and others, we have this sort of reformed amillennialism and two kingdom theory that really saps the godly optimism, which really is sapping the promises of the word of God. And that's what's so maddening about it.
0: There are, of course, um, just before we get to a bit more of a, a deeper dive into your book, there are of course you know friends family people known to all of us in our churches and communities who would be uh, possibly dispensational possibly erring on the two kingdoms side theologically but who don't actually live consistent with that in terms of the application in terms of the way they're actually living their lives they might be home educating or engaging in a political life for example um how, do we, how would you account for that? How would we um, uh, I- explain that? Because that obviously is a mercy.
2: Boy, it is, Joe. Uh, I think I would begin by saying that, uh, as a matter of fact, all of us live inconsistently with our profession. Uh, all of us believe that we should live uh, avoiding sin, and yet all of us sin in word, thought, and deed uh, every day. So we can't throw mud at anybody who we believe is theologically mistaken. But it is indeed a mercy. I'll give my opinion as to why um, this happens so often. I believe that true Christians, even if they theologically embrace a sort of pessimistic, dispensational view, almost intuitively know, intuitively see the promises of the word of God. They intuitively know that God is at work in the world. They intuitively know that they're called to advance the gospel and the truth and the kingdom. They might not use that language, but they know that God is king presently, Christ is king presently, even if they don't want to quite say that out loud because it might conflict with their theology. So as, uh, thank the Lord, they live, uh, many of them, uh, and I have relatives like that too, by the way, uh, they live better than they believe. And uh, this was true historically in the United States. A good example was Jerry Falwell Sr., who led the moral majority. He was dispensational, and yet he believed in, believed in applying the faith, including biblical law and culture. Francis Schaeffer uh, didn't spend a lot of time talking about eschatology. He was uh, amillennial, but he didn't talk about it because he spoke and acted as though he were postmillennial. So um, I think we can be very grateful for this and encourage these folks. And by the way, I would rather have them... Um, I, I would rather have them... Inconsistent with their theology uh, than have their theology correct and not apply the faith. Yeah. Now, I would rather that they both have a correct understanding of the Bible and apply that correct understanding. But of the two, faith without works is dead. I would actually, of the two, rather than be dispensational and act as though they were postmillennial, than be postmillennial and act as though they're dispensational.
0: Yeah. Well, um, that's actually that's actually a um, a really important I think quite a profound point and Francis Schaeffer is an excellent example actually um, uh, of that. So Andrew, um, tell us a bit now specifically, what is it that is distinctive? What are the distinctive markers of post-millennialism in this primer? You know, you often have people, uh, and I often have people come to me and they say. You know, Joe, I've got some idea of what premillennialism is, of what dispensationalism is, I've got some idea, a broad notion of what amillennialism is. But what is postmillennialism b- beyond what you've explained already about the um, the millennium, that period being a uh, figurative, a period of fullness or completion, and that, that uh, Christ returns after that. Uh, coming of something of the fullness of the gospel in history but what specifically um, is post-millennialism in its core and what would be some of the key passages of scripture that you would go to in this primer to say uh, to people that this is what what we really mean by an optimistic eschatology this is what we mean by post-millennialism
2: Well, that's a good question, Joe, and I'll begin with one negative, and that is, ironic as it might sound, one of the most important ones is not Revelation 20. Uh, In some ways, Revelation 20 and the term postmillennialism is not the best, because it leads people to think that essentially postmillennialism rests on a particular interpretation of Revelation 20. But if Revelation 20 were not even in the Bible, I would still be what's called today a postmillennialist. Because every eschatology presupposes a protology. And earlier you talked about the, thing, about the, the notion that last things actually begin with first things. R.J. Juni wisely and correctly made that point. So when people ask me, well, where does your postmillennialism begin? And I say, well, Genesis 1.1. Uh, with the goodness of creation and God's plan for creation. So uh, you asked about biblical texts, but also some key markers. I'll mention a couple of key markers. One I mentioned earlier. So first of all, inherent in postmillennialism is the idea that the resources for the advancement of God's work and Christ's kingdom in the earth for all the good things, every good thing before the second coming that will happen, are already at the disposal of the Church of Jesus Christ. In other words, there will not come a time in the future when God's work, when God's people on the earth will have at their disposal greater resources than they have today for the great commission to uh, help advance the kingdom of God, to uh, perpetuate the law of God, this great enlivening power of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God's revelation and its totality, both the Old and New Testaments, uh, the wisdom God gives. Uh, the leaders of the church. Uh, these are gifts in the church, according to Ephesians and Corinthians. So that, that is a fundamental point, that we're not waiting, Joe, for some later time to get greater resources to accomplish Christ's work. That's one thing. Another marker, and this is vital to postmillennialism, is the gradual rather than cataclysmic advance of the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus mentions those in a number of the parables. This actually goes back to the book of Daniel when, of course, there's the uh, great, uh, the image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw, and it's a very huge image, and I don't have time to go into the details, but remember Daniel saw it, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel interpreting a small stone made without hands, that is the supernatural stone, crashed this image, picture of the four great world empires on the feet, on the Roman Empire. And small stone, how could a small stone, just a minor stone be hurled and bring down this great image? Well, it was supernatural and it struck the Roman empire Then they knocked down this entire thing. But that isn't the end. Then this little stone gradually, gradually grows and fills the entire earth. Uh, that's a picture of the gradual growth of the kingdom. And of course, we read Jesus' kingdom parables, of course, about uh, the leaven, for example, and various other parables about the slow growth of the kingdom of God. Incidentally, a biblical text in Daniel is very important. In English, there's four or five words, five or six words, whatever it is there, that really led me to postmillennialism. It says there, these are very powerful, illustrative words. In the days of those kings, the Lord will set up a kingdom which shall not be moved. Not in the days of the 20th century, not in the 16th century, but in the days of the ancient world empires Mm -hmm. of Babylon and then Persia and then Greek. And of course, finally, the final world empire is the Roman Empire. I said final. I was wrong on that. There is one final empire and we're living in it today. And it's not American. It's not British. It's the empire of Jesus Christ, Um, transnational, uh, trans-ethnic. Uh, crosses all borders, it's Jesus Christ ruling from the heavens. Uh, so I mentioned several other biblical texts. One of them that is so powerful is Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter preaching at Pentecost, and he is applying texts of the Old Testament, Old Testament that speak of the enthronement of the king, he of David's seed, the Messiah who was promised to sit on David's throne. Well, Peter interprets that as happening with the ascension, with the resurrection, I should say, and then the ascension of Jesus Christ. He speaks of this as a present reality. Well, the Old Testament predicts that those are the times of great peace. Those are the times in the expansion of Israel in the earth. And of course, we know from the New Testament, it can't be limited to ethnic Israel. The church of Jesus Christ is the new Israel. So therefore, Peter is interpreting these Old Testament texts in David as saying that Christ is presently ruling and advancing the kingdom. And then, of course, there are texts like 1 Corinthians 15, which lay out in summary form the sequence of redemptive history. And there's not time to go into it now, but essentially it's saying that the Christ rose from the dead and he ascended and then he reigns. And as he reigns, he gradually puts all enemies down. And then comes the end, the end, like books have finis or the end, then comes the end. That is when his reign is finished, then comes the end. It's not that Jesus Christ comes and then there's a reign. It's that when he ascended, that's when the rain began. And then comes the end when all enemies, even death itself, the last tragic great enemy of man, uh, will be destroyed. Uh, I would also mention, and I could go on and on, but I'll mention finally the Great Commission itself. Mm -hmm. Think about it for a minute. It's a Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the most extensive of the Great Commission. Go therefore and disciple, that's the literal language, disciple the nations. Mm -hmm. Uh, He doesn't mean there just go and grab a few disciples among the nations. He said, make the nations themselves d- disciples. I like the language you have, Joe, in one of your books, uh, Biblical Nationhood. All nations should be Christian. There's no question about that. We'll talk later, or someone will talk later about Christian nationalism, which is not the same thing. But the idea that nations should be Christian is a part of the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And that short shows that This shows, and I'll conclude the question with this, that those people who argue for evangelicals, who argue for world evangelization, and most of them do, they argue for world evangelization, stop short and say, well, we don't believe in Christianizing the world. That's not what we're talking about. But really, that's to talk nonsense. To speak of world evangelization, evangelism doesn't begin when people just get converted and say, oh, I'm happy now. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. When people are evangelized, their mind is evangelized and their heart is evangelized and their work is evangelized their vocation and their child rearing is evangelized and their science and education and music over time is evangelized well that leads to christianization so every call every call for world evangelization is equally a call for world christianization yeah.
0: i actually pointed that out on one occasion to uh, i think ryan will remember i we were sat in a in a lounge at um, our facility with a number of uh, Christian leaders from Ontario and were having a fairly civilized conversation until one of them said, uh, we seem to be overlooking the elephant in the room here. And, uh, the, you could suddenly, you know, with these prominent leaders from Ontario, you could cut the, cut the atmosphere with a knife, Andrew. And I said, Oh, what is the elephant in the room? And this, uh, Baptist theologian said, are you trying to Christianize culture? Uh, and I said, well, I'm not trying to Islamicize it, I'm not trying to secularize it, and I'm not trying to paganize it, what are you trying to do with it? Um, and uh, the, the point sunk in, because there was a very, very long pause, nobody really knew how to answer, the point being that evangelism and evangelization um, implies inescapably Christianization. We're not called to uh, declare the lordship of Muhammad or of Brahmin or of some other god, but the lordship of Jesus Christ. And just as those uh, idolatrous claims have cultural and social impact in Islamic and Hindu countries, Christian claims have Christian implications for Christian uh, culture. Um, before we move on from the text to just sort of come to a couple of final Uh, questions. How would you fit Psalm 2 in there, Andrew? Because it seems to me that it's very difficult for a Christian to get around the meaning and implications of that incredible theocratic messianic psalm, Psalm 2.
2: Yeah, that's one I could have mentioned. And by the way, Joe, as you well know, that's not the only psalm (laughs) that speaks of the rule rule of Christ by implication. Well, This uh, essentially, that's about an answered prayer uh, that uh, the father says to the son, ask of me and I'll give you the heathen nations, the Gentile nations an inheritance and you will smash them. Uh, That is one of the clearest statements uh, in all of the word of God about the messianic reign of Christ and it's depicted not as somehow way in the future, but as a present historical reality. Now we know that can't return only; to, it's meaningless. If it returns only if it refers only to the eternal state. Everybody believes that all of the unbelieving kings, that all of none of them will be even part of the kingdom of God. So to say that they must submit now or be crushed obviously is a pre-consolament. That is yes. a, a pre-eternal um, state. That's one of them. And then I would mention another one that's very powerful. That is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament, Psalm 110, 110. Yep. Uh, which is uh, profoundly, profoundly postmillennial about uh, all things being placed under Christ's feet. Incidentally, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter, early Hebrews, Hebrews 1 and chapter 2, this is spoken of Jesus Christ, all things being placed under his feet, an ancient way of speaking. Of uh, a victor, a, a royal, a military victor, putting under his feet the cap, the the opposing king or, or uh, commander of the army under his feet, and of course, obviously, those reading the Bible will know that this is the very language of Genesis chapter three. Uh-huh. Christ uh, himself uh, crushing Satan. So, all of this leads me to believe there are a number of other. By the way, I've only mentioned about what have we Joe? mentioned? Only four or five biblical texts, important ones. Actually, in the Word of God, there are hundreds, and I mean that literally mm. hundreds of biblical texts that would support postmillennialism. That, in my view, cannot be shoved off into the eternal state. Cannot be limited to the church. Mm-hmm. As our millennials like to say, they're too vast, too broad, mm-hmm. to be limited to the Church of Jesus Christ. So, for that reason and others, I believe these promises will be fulfilled in time and history, gradually, and that we are the victors. That mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit is using us to advance His kingdom in time and history. The work that we are doing right now will move on into eternity in advancing Christ's kingdom.
0: Well, a cu- couple of um, concluding uh, questions. Andrew, um, briefly. The first one, those of us who claim uh, this optimistic eschatology, this biblical eschatology, this this post-millennialism, are often um, accused, uh, and a pejorative term is used, well at least it's it's used pejoratively, uh, we're often told that this is triumphalism, that we are triumphalistic, and this is somehow a bad thing and uh one of the uh one of the things that um i have I've sought to point out to people uh, with with respect to that particular charge is that the 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 christian uh, eschatology is one of cosmic conflagration it's one of a conflict between light and darkness between the kingdom of god and the kingdom of satan which are the only two kingdoms that the bible recognizes uh and that it is, a, it is a struggle that, as Kuiper famously said, will go on over our graves. Now, it seems to me that the whole idea of triumphalism is the notion that actually we're, we're not the triumphalists, it's actually those who broker a peace deal with the world and say the battle is over. You see, for us history is the theater of this conflict. It's History is the theater of this conflagration between Christ and his seed and the seed of the serpent. And it will go on until the end when Christ hands the kingdom to the Father, as you've said from First Corinthians 15. And I actually turn tables on that accusation and say, no, we're not the triumphalists because we believe, we don't broker a peace deal with the world and say oh well the kingdom of gods for another place another time another era or another realm some ethereal um uh upper story realm um and therefore peace peace uh you know we don't need to be in a cultural conflict it seems to me that actually the retreatist view is the one that's triumphalist because it says there's no conflict there's no battle how would you address that sort of charge of triumphalism and that will lead into my final question
2: yeah um agree with everything you said joe so here is another angle i think this is more sort of a a meta theological answer god is sovereign why does he allow such evil in the world there are a number of answers but uh, knowing that he is sovereign and we as calvinists believe that i mean he could end evil tomorrow he could get rid of all evil immediately why does he not do that Well, I believe one reason he doesn't do that is because he has such a high regard for man created in his image that he wants his people under the power of his spirit with his word to obey his promises, to fulfill their calling in the earth, to press under his authority, under the spirit's power, to press evil to the far reaches. And he's willing to take a lot of time to do that. In other words, he allows the possibility of evil and this great cosmic conflagration, so that his people as deputies in the earth, we call it the cultural mandate from Genesis chapter one. He wants his people to be faithful to his word and his commands and his law, to press the faith in history such that they can be his co-laborers. And for that reason, he permits even evil in the world so that they will fulfill his purposes in the earth. That is not triumphalism. There will be a triumph in the end. That implies conflict. There will always and everywhere be conflict. And I would say this about uh, post We don't believe that we will bring in the perfect kingdom. We believe even in the far reaches of the millennium, there will still be sin, there will still be sickness and death, although greatly mitigated compared to now. There will only be absolute sinless perfection, of course, in the eternal state. But nonetheless, we believe in the promises of the word of God and the fulfillment of those promises by means of the people of God—that's not triumphalism. That is promise keeping and promise obeying.
0: Yes. Well, let me conclude with with this question, Andrew. Because when you talk about this, I know that for Ryan and I, although I've managed to keep him quiet during this show for once, um, I know that Ryan and I get pretty excited. Uh, we get—I get pretty pumped up when I listen to you talking about the kingdom of God, when I hear you talking about the lordship of Christ, when I hear you talking about the promises of God, when I hear you talking about the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work in history, I get excited. I get uh, invigorated as a, as a believer. I, I feel renewed and refreshed in my calling and, um, in, and in the cultural mandate, in my vocation. I mean, that's the the effect it has on me when I, when I listen to that. So conclude just by answering this question for me. Why don't we want to win, Andrew? Why is it that some people don't want to be victorious? Why don't we want Jesus' lordship to be seen in every aspect of life? That's a real head-scratcher to me sometimes with believers, Why don't we want Jesus Christ to win and thereby for his people to win in history so that we can see the travel, that we might see Christ's travail, the travail of his soul and with him be satisfied? Why are we so pessimistic? Why are we resistant to that?
2: Joe, I believe that I have a good answer for that, even though It is a deeply convicting answer, perhaps for all of us at one time or another, because we are deeply irresponsible people. This vision that I am conveying to you will demand of us an exertion, uh, daily dying to self, the crucifixion of the flesh, that most Christians actually don't want to make. It means that uh, if we have any academic bent at all, we can't simply be devoted to what Rashtuni once called pure theology, simply thinking about soteriology and angelology and so on. But we must think about how the faith applies in education and in our architecture and in science and in politics and other areas of life. We have to do some radically um, radical rethinking. It means that we have to train our children up in the faith. It may mean we have to homeschool our children. It's going to put a lot of exertion. Uh, on our part, and frankly, one of the effects of the fall was the the lust for irresponsibility, the lust for laziness. I think mm. Christians do not like this vision. It will force them out of their comfort zones. That I believe is the principal reason. Joe,
0: is there an element too that well, we also point. is there is there an element too that we also like our sin, and we're not sure that we would want it. To... Uh, we not sure that like that whole problem of, you know, when laws fall off the statute books, Andrew, it's because juries will no longer convict their peers because they are committing the sins that, 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 that people are before the judge, uh, in regard to, um, is there an element of this too, something as basic and simple as our love of sin?
2: It is. And, um, It also demands, Joe, that we take all of the Bible seriously for all of life. And some people want to take the Bible seriously in sort of the private existential sphere, but when they recognize this vision means they must take the Bible seriously out beyond their own head and all areas of life, that's a frightening thing. And uh, I don't know of any vision properly understood that more gives glory to God than this particular vision. Because it recognizes he is he and Christ is Lord everywhere at all times under all conditions, and not just that, but that we must act according to that very awesome fact. That really is sort of uh, very awe inspiring and very sobering, and it should change our lives. Amen.
1: Amen. Those are uh, those are some great uh, great responses, Andrew. Appreciate you coming on the show. For, uh, for all of you who have been listening, uh, the book is a post-millennial primer or primer. I'm never sure how to say that. I hear it both ways from people I know and respect. Post-millennial primer. Maybe choose a different title, but uh, in any case, it is a, it is not a long book. Uh, it is an accessible book. You don't need an advanced degree to to grasp the concepts of it, and uh as we, as you've mentioned throughout uh, this episode, it is absolutely saturated uh, with scripture texts that uh, that support the conclusions. Not just uh, not just a long list of proof texts, but a uh, an examination and a uh, a demonstration and vindication of the doctrine of postmillennialism from scripture. Uh, I commend it heartily to you. Uh, we'll put a. Uh, put a link uh, in our show disc- show notes and description for where you can purchase that. Andrew Sandlin, Joe Boot, great to uh, have you both here with us today. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, and I remind you as ever that from him and through him and to him are all things. May Jesus Christ be glorified. We'll look forward to being with you again next week.